Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, good to have you here. And uh, we are in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the most important chapter in the entire Bible on um, the resurrection. Uh, it is a um, both a defense of the gospel and that part of the gospel uh, that is uh, the resurrection, but it also is an explanation of what he can expect as a result of the uh, resurrection. Let's uh, review a couple of things, if um, because a couple of you uh, haven't been here for a week or so, and plus we have a brand new person in the group. But uh, let's establish and in, in review a couple of things. One of the reasons the Apostle Paul writes this long chapter, the longest chapter in his 13 epistles and the longest chapter in this uh, particular book, is because he's writing to people who are dualists. Now that that's probably not something real familiar to you, but it's imperative to understand that. Otherwise you don't understand why he does some of the things that he does and says some of the things he says. The Greco-Roman world was a dualistic world in terms of the worldview. The body is evil, the spirit is good. The material world is evil, the immaterial world is good. That dichotomy was basic to how they looked at things. The Bible says that the material world, including our body, was created by God as something good. Sin has affected and cursed that world, but it still is redeemable, which is what Christ is all about. And so the body in and of itself, just like this cup of coffee and this, whatever this is, this and Jim's uh, iPad and all the other things, they're material things. In and of themselves, they're not evil. Do you understand what I mean by that? This is not evil. It can be used for evil if I hit this over Jim's head and fracture his skull. I have used something um, for a very evil end. So for the Greek, for the Greco-Roman world, it was inconceivable to them. Why would God resurrect the body? Because they anticipated that when death came, the spirit survived, the body's done. Nothing's going to happen to the body. That is not what the scriptures teach. And so the other aspect of this very important chapter is to remember something that God said to Adam and Eve at the very beginning of Scripture, the very beginning of time. The day that you sin is the day that you will die. And death, death has two dimensions. What did you do with that marker? Did you put it, put it right back? <laughs> I want to remind you of a couple of very, very important factors because we're going to get to this today. Death has two dimensions to it. It has a spiritual dimension to it, and it has a physical dimension to it. The spiritual dimension is separation from God. Now remember, there is a rat in separate. That's how you spell that. Don't put an E there. That has nothing to do with the Bible, but I thought you'd say that. Separation from God. Physical death is the separation of the body and the 
soul or spirit, if you will. All right, now, for the Greek, the Greek mind was, this means this is final. The separation from the body, of the body from the soul, is final. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible speaks of both of these dimensions being undone, if you will, not sure that's a good word, but being undone by the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ restores us to God. Fellowship is restored. A relationship is restored. We're no longer separated from God. And the resurrection, uh, well, I'm getting pretty low here, but reunites. I'm not going to write all that out again, but the body and the soul. All right. Paul has taught us in the first half of chapter 15 of, of the book of 1 Corinthians that the gospel involves the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just his death on the cross. This Friday, in a few days, we're going to celebrate what the church has historically called Good Friday, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. But if all we celebrated was the crucifixion of Jesus, that would pretty, that'd be a pretty destitute faith. That would be an empty faith. We're celebrating somebody who died and stayed in the grave? What good is that? What, what's the value of that? Because the scriptures, and we again reviewed that again, he is placed into the grave and buried. Three days later, he's brought back to life. He's resurrected. His body and his soul or spirit, however you think about those things, they're restored. What Paul has also explained to us in the second half of the chapter, or the second half of that part, is Jesus Christ's resurrection is the most attested historical event coming out of the ancient world. We have more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than we do for the existence of Alexander the Great. Which is, just that's kind of an inconceivable historical statement, but it's true. We have lots and lots and lots of evidences of what Alexander the Great did, but of his person. But the resurrection of Jesus is an immensely detailed set of historical observations and facts attesting to that is a true historical fact. Unfortunately, many people don't believe it, but many do. The other thing Paul has done up to where we're about to start this morning is that if the resurrection isn't true, and he sort of hypothesizes, he says, let's suppose it isn't true. And he itemized out all of the effects of that. And right at the end of the section, he says, and that means those, those who died in Christ, those people we know, our relatives, our friends who have put their faith in Christ you'll never see them again and then he adds we are really to be pitied people we believe something that's a lie and in addition it shows God is a liar because God said he's going to resurrect his son he didn't do it but he says as we studied last week but Jesus is resurrected that's why we celebrate Easter, the most important fact of our faith, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. The grave is, is empty. 
He is risen. All right. Now let's pick up with verse 30. I'm on page 22 of your notes. Um, what, is the, what is the effect of this? Central historical truth, this central historical fact that the grave, the tomb is empty. Verse 30, 31, and 32, it enables us to endure danger and suffering. Paul uses his own life as an example. Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it promise me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, do you understand what he's doing? It's very short and it's very pithy. And it's very succinct. He uses himself as an example. I am suffering for Christ. I am suffering abuse for Christ. If you go to Romans chapter, excuse me, for, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul details, and it's, it's quite extensive, all of the ways in which he has suffered for Christ. And in effect, he's asking this question, why am I doing this if there's no resurrection? That's silly for me to do that. And he, he refers to, we don't exactly know what that instance was, wild beasts at Ephesus. He had been arrested by the Roman Empire several times. Was that something that, that they, they, uh, they did to him? We just don't know. But he's asking that question. That, it's, it's, it's absurd for me to endure these things. And then he quotes something out of uh, the Old Testament. It actually was a proverb of the ancient world. What we might as well do is eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. Live it up. Indulge, because tomorrow we die. If death is final, let's put it the way he's putting it. If there is no resurrection, it doesn't matter how you live. You might as well live it up, because tomorrow you'll die. And many, and I'm saying this very in a very broad stroke way, many, 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 many people live their lives like that. They live just for the moment. And that mantra that he's really quoting here, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, whether, whether people articulate it that way, have even thought about it that way, that's exactly how they're living their lives. Indulge the present because there's no hope for the future. Grab, this is an old beer commercial when I was a little bit younger, grab all the gusto you can for you only go around once. It was in a beer commercial. I mean, it's just, there's so many ways in which things are marketed, so many ways in which people think, and just the way in which people live, they are living according to that maxim. But if the resurrection is true, And to live it up, and it doesn't matter because tomorrow we die, doesn't mean that's the end. I told you, I think it was in this group I mentioned, the famous Enlightenment mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal, his wager. Did you ever hear that? Yeah. I've used that many, many times. That's a very powerful way to get somebody to think about eternity. 
Ray Joe essentially was talking to a man who wasn't, uh, who didn't believe in anything. He was an agnostic slash atheist. And, and Pascal said, now listen, suppose you're right, and I have spent my life believing in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You die and I die. Doesn't really matter particularly what I believed, if you're right. But suppose I'm right that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical fact, and believing in him is the guarantee of eternal life. If I'm right and I die, I experience the eternal life that's promised me. If you die and I'm right, you have lost everything. In effect, that's Paul's, it would be turning what Paul's saying around, turning it on its head. That's exactly what he's saying. The way I live my life doesn't make sense if there's no resurrection. Why do I experience all the suffering and the, the, the terrors of the Roman Empire and the opponents if there's no resurrection? I might as well eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow I'm going to die. It doesn't matter. See what he's doing? And I think that's, if you stretch that out, you could just say, see the rest of the New Testament on how you should live your life if the resurrection is true. Man, I'm telling you, there are, in this country, there are tens of millions of people that are banking on the conviction that there is no resurrection. What if they're wrong? What do you mean by banking on? Uh, they're depending, they're believing, they're, if you will, like Joe said, they're betting everything that there is no resurrection. And, I, you know, again, uh, uh, Dave, whether they even have consciously thought that through, or that's just the way they're living their life. And what Paul is appealing to is the central truth that if there is a resurrection, then it really, really matters how you live your life. And then he concludes this in 33 and 34, and he quotes, verse 33, he is quoting from a Greek philosopher here. He is not quoting the scriptures. He is quoting a Greek philosopher one that they would have known about. His name was Menander. And that doesn't mean anything to you, I'm sure. But So he, it's, it's interesting he chooses to quote him. He doesn't quote somebody from the Old Testament. doesn't quote Jesus. He quotes one of their guys. And he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Which, that sounds biblical, and it certainly is a principle that's biblical, but he's quoting a Greek philosopher become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak to this your shame. You're living as if you have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So he's, he's, taking, he's taking a philosopher's statement that they would have been familiar with, turning it into an apologetic for what he's saying, and saying the truth of the resurrection should affect how you live your life. Or putting it another way, it matters how you live your life. And sober-minded, some of, not every, I'm reading from the New American Standard, not all of you have that, so it's probably a, a different way it's translated. But do you have different translations? What does it say? Instead of be sober-minded, what else does it say in some of your translations? Come back to your senses. Come back to your senses. Okay, come back to your senses. That's good. 
So everybody has either come back to your senses or be sober-minded. Okay. Verse 34, what is your, your first phrase? So, what is your first so, oh, phrase? Okay. All right, so it, it, should affect, it should affect how we live. It should be an, um, it, should be, it should cause us, it should be an incentive to us, it should compel us to righteous living. It matters how you live your life. Uh, Jim, I'm wondering about, you know, people will say, I never even knew about this. No one ever proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to me. I never went to church. Um, Why would I be held accountable if I didn't know this Jesus that you talk about? In other words, I'm, I'm innocent. Why are you convicting me? Why would those people be charged with this knowledge for salvation. Don't you like these very easy questions he asks? Yeah. That, that's something it's you like can answer. Something you can <laughs> answer in just a sentence. Um, I think I can erase it. Fred, the only way I can answer this question is because um, there are three parts to the answer. Now I understand why there's a little break on this. So this doesn't move when you erase it. Yeah. <coughs> I'm going to turn Fred's question into a little bit of a different question, but it, I think, fits with the way he's asking this question. it that way? Sure. How can God hold human beings accountable? Um, in a very real sense, uh, the first three chapters of Romans, which we studied, I believe we studied that last year, answers that question. So Fred and I had planned this as a review of Romans. That is why he asked the question. That's actually not true, but that's really the answer. And there are three major answers to this question. How can God hold us accountable? First, the created world reveals God. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 34. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And what has humanity done with that created world? As it, and in many cases, it has caused people to respond to God and want more of an understanding of who he is. But Paul, making, making kind of a general observation, what much of humanity has done with this is they've suppressed it. They suppressed that truth and actually fallen into idolatry. Because my God has a face. My God has a shape. My God has, has something that's tactile and I can get my arms around it. 
and you make a statue out of it, wood or stone or something, you bow down to that. And as Paul says in that paragraph, they worship the created thing instead of the creator. Strike number one. And in chapter two of Romans, he says, every human being is instilled with a sense of right and wrong. God's mark, verse uh, chapter two, verse fourteen. God's moral law is written in their hearts, an innate sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? Well, you can say it's a part of the social dynamics of evolution. You can argue that, or you can say it comes from God. And how have human? Again, he's speaking in broad terms because not every human has responded. Some have responded to that and come to God in faith eventually. But typically, throughout history, humanity has hardened God, hardened their conscience against God. Uh, biblical word is seared. So that response. The third is God. So strike two. The third response is God's moral law. God's moral law as revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, we can summarize that as the Ten Commandments. That was first revealed to the Jews, but revealed through the Jews to others. And it's really amazing when you look at humanity, when you look at the history of law, when you looked at the, the history of, of, uh, of decrees going all the way back to 18th century B.C., Hammurabi in early Babylonia, he puts a code of laws together. It's called Hammurabi's Code, and you can Google it sometime, you'll see them. It's amazing. They parallel perfectly the law of God. And that predates Moses. That's why Roman Catholic... Uh, scholarship argues for something called natural law that that is just part that is just part of how God has made us so that the moral codes of laws that we write parallel very similarly what God has said because that's how God created us and so I mean you're not you're going to look you're going to look long and hard to find any civilization in their in their codified law legitimizing murder they don't, no civilization legitimizes premeditated murder. Why did they do that? Where's that come from? Well, that's just self-serving. Or it's anchored in how God. You're going to look long and hard that's, you're, to find uh, codified law which legitimizes incest. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but legitimizes it. I mean, you could just you could go start going down those. You're going to look long and hard to find codified law that legitimizes the stealing of property. Now again, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but legitimizes it. Where does that come from? So in a sense, that's that's in strike three in, in what how God can hold us accountable because all of these things, and this is how the Apostle Paul uh, makes the argument in the first three chapters in Romans, these three things are very clear, they're universal, they apply to everybody. And if somebody responds to them, God gives them an opportunity to respond to more of his revelation. And then, I'll put a dotted line there, because the culmination of all of this is Jesus. 
Jesus is the culmination, the apex, but also, as the book of Hebrews says, the final revelation of God. There will be no more. This is God's final revelation, his son, the second person of the Trinity. And it is incumbent upon humanity to respond to God's revelation. And as, as, as you, this, this is very clear in history. As humanity responds to God's revelation, he gives more revelation. So it took seven minutes to answer your question, but that's... No that, man, no man stands no, innocent. No. Never, no, as he says, Paul says this in Romans 1, it's about verse 20. No one will stand before God and say, you are being unfair to me. It's, he, he says in another, another verse, every human being is without excuse. You, can, you will not be able to stand before God and say, sorry, I never heard about you. You're being unfair to me. And, I, and God is always perfectly just. So he, he's not going to be glib and condescending. He's, I think my own view of what the books, when it says the books are open, I think what God is going to do, because humanity stands condemned. You don't need the evidence that you're condemned. <laughs> but I think what God will do, I really believe this, God is going to show, okay, here are all of the opportunities I gave you to respond to my grace. All of them. And those books are going to be pretty thick, it seems to me. So that God will be able in his perfect and pure justice to pass the sentence. You rejected me. I gave you multiple opportunities, but you rejected me. Okay, that's, I think that's the way to think about that. And, that's as, and this is what I've just gone through is the first five chapters of Romans, basically. You expect me to forgive you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's good to have you here. Have a great rest of the day. Okay, that, that does, I answered Fred's question, but does anybody have a follow-up? Or is, I mean, that, that's the essence of the first part of Romans. And then, then Paul answer, introduces and answers in, in fullness what Christ did. And made it possible for us to become righteous. So I understand what you're saying, and I don't even disagree. There's just some people in this world that, that won't have heard his story. And so I have a hard time thinking that, that God would judge them with the same degree of somebody that had opportunity. But you would agree that he will judge them? Yeah. Because every human being. Every human being, regardless of where they live, has been exposed to them. Perfect. Yeah. If that's what he's judging them on, then nobody gets a pass. Exactly. And that's exactly what Paul said. <laughs> but if, you're, if you have those plus you have, have this and opportunity, then I think you are Okay. Now, you're raising a different question, which is, are there degrees of God's judgment? I think it would all be my God, God makes it clear that as you respond to these, God sends more revelation. 
So God being God, if you respond to these three, will he send you an opportunity to respond to this? Even if you're on a desert island. There are, there are examples. I'm serious. This is going to sound bizarre. There are examples of people on, a, on an island responding to these three and washing up on the shore is a bottle that somebody stuffed scripture verses in. Okay, but that's, that's my point. Well, at my point. have to have the, the scripture verses wash up in the bottle. But, but, if, but the, the, the point I'm making is God is sovereign and his providence is real. As you respond to his revelation, he will send more. So he may, and supernaturally, if you're responding, he will send more. The, the, these are bizarre examples, but even uh, you know, in a bottle washing up on the shore, uh, Bible verses that somebody somewhere in the world stuffed into a bottle. That's what I'm saying. As you respond to God's revelation, God resp- sends more. So if you don't respond to his revelation, are you still accountable? Okay, see, that's, that's the, that is the exact and precise point Paul is making in the book of Romans, the first three chapters. Humanity has adequate revelation to respond to God. And whatever that revelation is, if they do not respond, he, because one of the other points of, of, of the scripture is that's in Romans 5. We are born sinners. Sinners is not what you do. Sin is what you are. <coughs> that is what we inherit. And that's why Christ came, to, to uh, deal with that systemic problem we have as human beings. Mark. Uh, God definitely is just. And also he's a very personal God. So he's going to deal with every person accordingly. And, um, you know, even there's people on the desert never heard of Jesus. There's people who are born into culture or, or, a, or a religion uh, or a cult or whatever they are. And when, even when they hear about Jesus, it's very hard for them to accept Jesus the way we are accepting Jesus because we grow up in a different culture and different families and different background. And uh, God will judge, from my opinion as well, is... God will judge every person accordingly. He understands the hardship for that person to accept Jesus or even understand the message of Jesus. And he will understand the others and how they respond to it. And I think it's a very fine line when we say, if somebody responded to the first three points and did not accept Jesus, we'll go to heaven. Because you know, if somebody really was in a position to accept Jesus and he went on by the three points and did not accept Jesus, he missed the point, which is the point of the Bible that Jesus says we're going to be only accepted through him. Does that make sense? Uh, I think I'm understanding what you're saying. Are you agreeing then with John 14 when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man yeah. comes to the Father but through me. And this is, this is exactly what I'm saying. It's, okay. This, this verse by itself is... Is a condemnation for us that it is only through Jesus that we exactly. can um, Exactly. There is other people say, you know, if you agree with the three first three points by the moral law and conscious and created world, you know, it reveals to you who God is, and you are in a position that you cannot accept Jesus because of your culture or whatever. I don't know how God is going to judge those. I know that if 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 it's on me, I will continue telling them about Jesus, but I don't know how they're going to. Go to heaven if he does not accept Jesus. He will not go to heaven if he doesn't accept Jesus. 
That's what John 14 declares. Uh, but it, it, and I think partially what you were saying, you must understand the exclusive nature of that verse with all of the rest of this. Because that doesn't mean a person has never had an opportunity to respond. Some people have harder time to respond. That's, that's correct. That's correct. Like people born in Judaism, for example, you know, they heard about Jesus and stuff like that, but the culture and stuff makes it harder for them to accept Jesus. Am I going to give him a free pass or not? I, am, I have no position to do that. It is God who will do that. He's just, he's personally God. And I think, I mean, you, we could all put all kinds of scenarios on the table. But the one thing we know for certain, and again, this is what Paul declares so with crystal clear clarity in Romans, no one is going to be able to stand before God and say, you are being unfair to me. I never had, a po- I never had an opportunity to respond to you. Nobody's going to ever be able to stand before God and say that. And so I, some of these, I cannot answer every scenario that people lay on the table. But I do know these, these are the four primary ways God has revealed himself. And each one gets more and more specific. And the Bible says that as a person responds to God's, creation, uh, God's uh, revelation, God sends them more detailed revelation to respond to. And as they respond to it, they get the message of Jesus. If they don't respond to it, then God says, God says, you have rejected me. I mean, Paul makes, and I, this is one of the struggles that I have in, 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 in a modern world, postmodern world actually, but many people believe in a very general God, and that's adequate. That's Christianity is a very exclusivistic religion, not socially, ethically, or it's exclusivistic in that it centers on Christ. And it's, uh, there are not multiple ways to God. You came out of Islam. Allah is not an acceptable way to God. It's not about Abrahamic religions and all that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, but, uh, so, Fred didn't open a Pandora's box, but it's sort of becoming a Pandora's box. But it's so, it's so a back to someone that's Hindu. And that's how they were raised. And that was their culture. And might I be so rash as to say, if you were born in the appropriate place on Earth, all of us around this table might be Hindu. And so, there's our choices to find our way to God. How has a Hindu responded to this? That will be the question that he... Okay, that's where you start. Yeah, that, that will be the question. A Hindu has responded by rejecting this as a revelation of God. They conclude the world is filled with God. And I'm just hoping I picked the right one. Okay, fine. But then it, you would find the same with someone that was a Taoist or someone that was following Confucius. That's the point. Or, you know, That's so the point. They would all have rejected God. But they may not even know that they did that. <clears throat> you are making an assumption that, in Romans, for example, uh, says that's, that's not a valid assumption. That they have consciously and willfully 
rejected God. He sees everything. The whole world in the whole world's in his hand, like the song says. I mean, we say it, but he knows it. I mean, he knows everybody intricately. Yeah. So, I mean, he knows, I mean, I see in our finite mind, we, we can't even fathom that. But God, he understands all that. He 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 moves through all, all the whole world and you know, through those accounts and everything else in, in their own language. I've been in some of those countries. I've been into some of those tribes, our missions trips, and I was amazed how some, some of the stuff that they knew. But I thought that, boy, how did they figure find out? But all of them, some of them said, even even later, the world even shows that. And I, I, I had I, I couldn't even speak their language. I had people with me speaking their language, and they even said the created world reveals God. And I, I've been in those, the, the, some of those tribes. I have. Mm-hmm. And, and so you see God over the whole world. He knows that. I mean, he's not, we're not going to be without excuse. Like, you know, he, 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 oh, I forgot. I, I left a person over there in that little bush or something. And he, he's not going to another, another, and it's a word that Paul uses in Romans 2. God always has a witness for himself. And that means a witness for himself, who he is, his character, his nature, what he's doing, but it is incumbent upon the human being to respond to that. And it, it, you know how you respond and when you respond. And as I, as I said earlier, I, I really believe, you know, based on 66 books of the Bible, that God gives every human being on earth multiple, multiple opportunities to respond to his grace. You know, I, it doesn't matter who you are, wherever or wherever you live. And as, as you correctly said, when you travel and you, you start to really have very personal, transparent conversations with people, it is amazing how much that of this they are responding to. And then you say, now listen, I want, can I add one additional point? Have you heard of Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he's done? And so, I mean, there, there are the kinds of things that when you're visiting with someone about some of these very profound, and generally it can't be within the first five minutes you meet somebody. It's, it's you establish a relationship. I get to the Middle East every year at least once, and when I'm with Muslims or I'm with Jews, that openness and sensitivity to spiritual things and that there is a God is there, but you bring up Jesus, then it's easier. They want to continue the conversation, or you shut the conversation down. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, Mark knows. I mean, Islam has a role for Jesus. It's, it, but it's, it's a, it's a distorted role, but they have a role for Jesus. And, uh, it, it it's been amazing in my life, and, and I've gotten to know Mark, but, been amazing in my life how many Muslims will often when nobody else is around <laughs> they'll begin to talk very openly and very transparently about what they perceive as the shortcomings of Islam but that's a very hard that's a very 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 hard and that doesn't happen in the first five minutes of a conversation all right um <laughs> well, I mean, Fred who is Jesus? I mean, what, what, he's a Muslim Jesus. 
He's a Muslim. They, they, he's a prophet. Muslim. He's a prophet. He's a prophet and one of the Muslims. Well, if he's a prophet, why don't they believe what he said about sunrise? And he said, you know, in Islam, they invented the own Jesus message that Jesus himself um, rejects the resurrection and even dying on the cross, and, and that he comes before God and says that he's a Muslim. So they invented the Jesus. They picked up many stories of the Bible and, and changed them and make them make Jesus a Muslim Jesus. And Jesus did not die on the cross for sin. And this is one of the things that he came from before God in a hypothetical situation, say, I did not die on the cross and I did not resurrect. And, and uh, the Quran teaches that Christ is coming back. And he's going to make the whole world Muslim. The first thing is to destroy the cross. Yeah. That he's going to say the cross never happened. Yeah. Well, on Temple Mount in Jerusalem, in the Dome of the Rock, which is not a mosque, it's a, it's a, it's a memorial, but on the inside of it are a whole bunch of sayings. In effect, woe to you if you believe in that God is Trinity. Woe if you believe that God, Jesus is the Son of God. Woe, I mean, it's all those things that are central. And because when the Caliph erected that in the late 600s, it was to be, this is evidence of the triumph of a new faith. And it's the completion in the song. But that's... But I know, too, in history, because I, 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 I had a class at UNO way back when I went to school there, and we didn't, it wasn't a religious class, but they came in there, but the, the professor said, even in history books, that there's a count of Jesus and, and the cross, even in the history books. And, and so... Way before Muhammad. Way before Islam. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, Hinduism Hinduism has an answer to who is Jesus. Buddhism has an answer to who is Jesus. They all have a role for him. And they they talk about him. And the, the Buddhist says Jesus is an amazing, an amazing human being. He achieved nirvana in four shots. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, he, was, he was resurrecting. You know, he went through four cycles of life. Man, nobody achieves it in four, you know. And Hinduism says Jesus went to the east and sat with the gurus in the Himalayas. And that's where he learned, and he became an enlightened... The 30 years that he disappeared. Off. Yeah, that's, wow. he was in... He was over there. He was in the so mountain. He has a little bit of Jesus in the books, you know. Why did you go right to the right book? You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, in a Hindu, if you, again, not in the first five minutes, you just stand with a Hindu, you, you have a role for Jesus. Would you mind if I open my book and show you Jesus? And if God's word is powerful, that's an opportunity for his power. To finalize what this is saying. All right, that Fred... Forty minutes ago, you asked that question. That was a good question. Um, goodness me! But I want to say about the power of the Bible. I had two instances with customers that were going to become Catholic priests. They were in the seminary, and they were two weeks away from ordination. I'll bring them here if you want me to. And they got uh, something happened. They were somewhere. They picked up a Bible. And started reading it, and, then they, and they thought, what I'm doing is not right. And they, and they didn't become priests. And they're, 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 they follow the Lord today. Two different people in this last week. I can bring them here, they'll tell you that. Yep. Yep. And I mean, that's how, you know, we don't see them, but God sees all those people. 
you know, in all their circumstances, but how he works, and we just know he's God, and he works in everybody's life in different ways. But the word of God is a powerful word. I mean, it says, you know, get our bone and marrow, our thoughts and intentions, and if you get into it, I mean, I even, you know, I even use it when I share, share Christ with people, I, I, I use it with the, the word of God because faith comes from hearing here from the word of God. I have, what does that say to you? And it's amazing. And, it, it's, and they read it, and, and I know it either, you know, I can see how God works through those verses when I'm showing them to them. It's a powerful book. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very hard to separate one church from another. Uh, I don't want to say anything, but, you know, there is there is Catholics who embrace that. Mm-hmm. that they're great and amazing Christians. And, mm-hmm. You know, so it's not, you know, others who are lost completely are the, mm-hmm. are the biggest problem that we pray for them. But mm-hmm. separating churches is since Vatican II and Roman Catholic uh, parishioners were be able were able to open the Bible and study it for themselves, amazing things have happened. Uh, it's really it's really great. Uh, we are almost out of time, but I want to look at verse thirty five with you because this is what we will study next week. Because I thought we would get near the end of chapter fifteen the week. Oh. How delusional was I? But that's all right. It was very valuable to do this. The second half of the chapter, which begins in verse 35, asks two and answers two additional questions. We must infer that these were questions that the Corinthians were asking. Okay, Paul, given the resurrection, how are the dead raised? How are they raised? When does that occur? How, how will that occur? He will answer that question in verse 50 and following. The second question, and with what kind of body are they raised? He will answer that question in verse 36 through verse 50. So he answers the second question first. And they're appropriate questions. If we rephrase them, it would be something like this. Okay, Paul, I understand what you're saying, and I believe that that's true. That there is the literal physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there is the promise of the literal physical bodily resurrection of me when I die. I believe that. Now, Paul, I have two more questions for you. What's the nature of that resurrection body? Is it going to be totally different? Will I see Joe in heaven and I'll know him? Jim and everybody else around the table to put their faith in Christ. And second, Paul, how is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? I mean, you're, you're telling me it's going to happen, but fill me in with some more details. And for someone, uh, well, I erase that, but for someone, as the Greco-Roman world was coming out of a dualistic way of looking at things, these were really appropriate questions. Okay, Paul, I believe in a resurrection. That's really contrary to what I've come out of my worldview, but I believe what you're saying is true. Now, Paul, you've got to answer this question. What's the nature of that body? Is there continuity between my body now and what my body will be in the new heaven and new earth? 
Is it you want to mean by continuity? Will I be able to recognize Joe and everybody else around the table, or will I not? I'll say, who are you? Oh, why Joe? Oh, you're Joe. Man, you look so much better than you did back then. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. You're to my left. I, I always pick on Jim. I, I kind of like you, Joe. <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm being humorous uh, and, and to the point probably being absurd, but it's, these are legitimate, appropriate questions. I mean, they're just natural. And what he's going to answer is there is both a continuity between the two and there's discontinuity. There is a similarity and a tremendous dissimilarity. The similarity is it's a body. And it's going to look exactly like the body you have, presumably as an adult. But it's going to, it's going to be the same. But the dissimilar discontinuity is it's never going to deteriorate. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more tears. I'm not going to wake up anymore in the morning and my left knee ache as it does now. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be limited like I'm increasingly starting to see myself at 67. Those, no, not, not, not in the resurrected body. And then he's going to answer, when does it occur? It's when Christ comes back for his church. That's in 51, and, and, and that parallels with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we'll, if we have we develop it on get through it so these are two very 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 appropriate questions and they're natural questions that flow out okay given the resurrection okay i believe paul i believe what you're saying but i've got two more questions and that's what he's going to ask and he's going to answer those and they're very legitimate questions they're good questions and it helps us to have an idea of the amazing miraculous thing that god has in store for us a glorified, resurrected body. And we will live forever as a soul, this sounds weird, but as a soul-body unit. We will live forever. It's not just my soul that lives forever. I mean, Fred is not just the body I see sitting in that chair. It's, it's Fred's soul, spirit. When if, if he dies before Jesus comes back, his body will go into the grave, his soul to, be, to go be with Jesus. Paul says in Second Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When Christ comes back for his church, his body in the grave will unite with his soul who comes back with Jesus and forever be with the Lord. That's when it occurs, and that's a miracle. It's, it's an absolute astounding miracle, but that's what he's going to teach us. We'll get to that next week. Father, we're thankful for this uh, morning, uh, well, now into the afternoon. Thanks for Fred's question, which was so appropriate. Uh, it's um, complex, it's hard, but we have to keep coming back to the, the truth that is t- declared and revealed in Scripture that helps us to know how to answer a difficult question like that. So, Lord, I ask your blessing on these men as they go their separate ways. Watch over them, take care of them. And this, uh, this Friday and this Sunday, we celebrate two momentous events of our faith. The atoning crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He was our substitute. He died in our place. And uh, three days later on Sunday, you brought him back from the dead, validating and proving that you accepted his substitutionary sacrifice, conquering death, conquering sin, so that it no longer has authority over us. What an amazing, absolutely glorious truth. We want to celebrate this this weekend. So give all of us a blessed Easter as we remember and reflect all that Christ has done for us. We worship you, we thank you, and we praise you. Help us in what we do to the rest of this day, this week, 
always represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, man.